Once in time immemorial, the Bodhisattva was born as a goose. And he grew up to be the leader of 90,000 geese. And he lived up in Mount Chittakuta in the ancient Himalayas. One day he was flying down in the plains where you could get this very sweet rice that grew in the uh, rice paddies down there. And after he ate some of the rice, he flew very swiftly over the, uh, the ancient city of Benares. So swiftly that it was, a, it was like a golden mat was woven over the city. And the great human king of the time looked up and saw and said, that must be a king like me. I want to meet him. So he sent his ministers out with flowers and incense and unguents and musicians to the foothills where the Bodhisattva was at rest. And he said to his own ministers, well, what, are, what are all these humans doing with incense and music and all this stuff? And his, and his minister said, I think the king, the human king wants to be friends. So the Bodhisattva said, okay, we're friends. <laughs> and so then one day, when the human king was bathing in his lake in the mountains, the Bodhisattva came swooping down with sandalwood on one wing and water from the Ganges River on another wing and sprinkled him with the water and then sprinkled him, misted him with the cooling sandalwood. And from then on, the king longed to see his friend, the Bodhisattva. Well, one day, <clears throat> two of the youngest geese went up to their leader and said, you know, we want to fly fast like you. Tomorrow morning, we want to race the sun. You'll perish if you try to race the sun. The sun is very swift. You don't know your limits against something uh, so, so fast that way. So they all went to sleep, and the two, the two young kids, being rascals, got up before the sun, and they, uh, they went off to Mount uh, Yagandara, where the sun would hit the peak, aiming to take off and race against the sun. Well, our Bodhisattva woke up also just before the glow of dawn, and he, you know, scanned, and he saw only 89,998. <laughs> and he said, ah, I know what's up. So he himself flew to Mount Yugundara and joined the two young geese just as the sun was coming up, and he said, let's all go. So they all took off. And they flew, their wings soaring against the currents of the air for a long time. Well, well into the mid-morning, the, one of the geese, his wings started to, to flame. He felt on fire. He said, I can't go on. You know, I'm going to perish. I'm not going to make it. And with soothing words, the Bodhisattva said, oh, don't worry. You know, I'll, I'll save you. And took him on his wing and flew back to Mount Chittakuta and left him in the nurture of the flock. And he went back again, and the second goose, she was going well on into the afternoon. But then, her, for her too, her wings began to fire, and she began to, to, to fall and lower and cry out. The Bodhisattva said, don't worry, I'll take care of you, and took him on his wing and took him back to Mount Chirakuta as well. And then he thought, today I myself will race against the sun. So he went all the way back to Mount Yugandara, where they began, and then took off. But in no time at all, he was ahead of the sun. For he had this gift as the bodhisattva in that life. And he thought, what's, what's the use? This is folly. I think I'll go and see my friend, the king, and talk dhamma. So, but before he did that, he flew to both ends of the world, to where it, the sun had not yet reached where it was dark, and back to where the sun had already left, where it was dark, and then the length and breadth of all of India. And then once again over Benares, he flew so fast it cast a golden shadow. It's a beautiful pall of gold filtering down with not a crack or a, a crack or a crevice in this blanket of gold. And then as he slowed down, little rays of golden light would shine through, mingled with the sun's rays. And the king was looking out of his palace window and he saw this spectacle. And at the end, it was the signature of the Bodhisattva, our great goose. 
And then he came swirling down right into the window sill of his friend. And the king was so happy to see him, he brought him in and gave him uh, sugar-scented uh, water and, and wild rice and put him on his golden throne and served everything in golden dishes and said, I'm so happy to see you. He said, what have you been doing today? <laughs> and our, our bodhisattva said, reported what his actions were. And the king said, can you show me anything as swift as the sun? Oh, great king, my friend, I cannot show you anything so swift. You would not be able to see. Well, can you show me something like it? Ah, oh, I can show you something like it, I think. Have you archers? And the king said, I have four of the greatest archers in all the world. Well, you call them, said the bodhisattva. You call them to your lower court, and I want you to have a, a stone pillar upon which I can stand, and a bell, a brass bell to be tied around my neck. So they finished their, um, uh, the tea for the king and the sweetened water and wild rice for the goose, and they, they went down from the upper chambers into the lower courtyard, and there was the retinue all ready, and these four archers came up. They uh, were instructed by the bodhisattva to face the four cardinal directions, north, south, east, and west. And they, uh, they had these huge, large uh, bows and, uh, and arrows made of the finest feathers and the finest, lightest wood that would fly so that one could not even see them. So the four archers lined up in the four directions. Our, our, our swift goose got on the top of the pillar. The bell was tied around him. And then he said to the king, when I give the instruction, these archers will fire in the four directions simultaneously. You will never see the arrows hit the ground. In fact, you will never even see the arrows. I will grab them and put them at your feet, but you won't even see me move. I have to see this, said the king. So the signal was given, and the arrows indeed went off in the four directions simultaneously. Just like that, couldn't even be seen. But just as swiftly, all four arrows were at the feet of the king. And our bodhisattva was standing, unmoving on the top of the pillar, but the bell around his neck was ringing. And the king said, wow. <laughs> awesome, he said. <laughs> he said, that's fast. I can't imagine anything faster than that. Oh, but actually, my dear friend, great king, said the Bodhisattva, that was the slowest of my slowest speeds. Was there anything, what, I can't, what, what would be faster than that, said the king. And the Bodhisattva said, well, 10,000, nay, 100,000 times faster than my fastest speed is the speed with which all the elements of life in all living beings, including yourself, are just now vanishing. And the king fainted. <laughs> it was too much for him. He fainted, his ministers came up, had to revive him, and he reported feeling overwhelmed with that insight, feeling fear and uncertainty. And then with the most honey-sweet voice, his friend, the kind and great Bodhisattva Goose said, Dear King, do not be afraid of change, of anicca, of death. Understand it. If you understand this truth, this nature of things, then the whole way that you live your life will be altered forever. If you understand this one quality of change, of impermanence, you will never let a day go by where you do not offer some kindness, some help, some generosity 
to some being or indeed to all the beings in your realm. And thus did the love and kindness of the, of the great goose help deliver and implant this deep understanding of the nature of things in this king. And indeed he did take the teachings in and it affected the way he lived and understood his life and cared for all the beings in his realm, not only for his lifetime, but the teaching lasted for a thousand generations. The king said, so sweet is your voice, even sweeter the sight of you. I would want you to stay here. But the, the wise goose said, you know, you may just decide to have me for a stew, a goose stew one night. He says, I know the language well of my sisters and brethren in the wild. I know the language of animals. The language of, of humankind is, is dark to me. You, you, your, your teachings have just begun. I want to preserve our friendship. It's time for you now to take them to heart. Those who are close of heart, uh, even if they be uh, an ocean apart, they're still close. I think we have this link. So I must go and do what I must do, and you must do what you need to do now. But just feel, look in your heart whenever you miss me. I'll be there. And given the nature of things in this world, if karma be uh, in our favor, we will meet again. And then so off he flew. The king lived a good life. It's a unique way to be shown the truth of our experience. And if we should be so lucky to have someone like the, the swift goose to come and provide us both the opportunity to see so deeply but in fact, of course, these stories point to uh, the truth within us, that there is such a being within us who is always available uh, and helping to reveal the nature of things when we start to practice. And one of the things represented in this story is the quality, the second awakening quality of the seven factors of awakening, that of uh, Dhamma Vichaya. Uh, investigation. The Dhamma has several meanings. Dhamma is used as phenomena, mind-body phenomena. It is all the what we experience in the moment in our bodies, our Dhammas, all the sensations and all the elements of mind too. These are Dhammas. And Dhammas are also the, the order of things, natural order that is the, the way that things act out of a lawfulness in the universe, whether it be in nature, uh, the, the order or lawfulness of, of, um, uh, of the plant life, for example, or biological life, uh, or psychological mind life and karma and so forth, and the teachings of the Dhamma itself. Dhamma is also the realization of these things. So we are practicing Dhamma so that we can touch, experience the mirror of the spotless Dhamma, the great realization. So all these things are Dhammas. Vichaya uh, means uh, non-intellectual discernment. It is a vision of things as they are, not filtered through concept, not filtered through through intellect. Dhamma Vichaya is really another name for wisdom, for insight, here used in its form as an awakening factor. It acts to, to dispel delusion. It was, it was the aim of the goose, the swift bodhisattva goose, uh, through his care, through his love, 
to dispel the delusion in his friend, the king, who was, had up to that time was content to be living the life the way he was, somewhat blinded by his palatial pleasures and great power and wealth, even though he was indeed a good guy. But the goose helped bring that, turn on that light of investigation. Dharma Vichara is the illumination of phenomena. The light that goes on in the field of awareness and knows the nature of dhammas. This body, just as it is. Investigation is when we speak of letting awareness arise from within the body. To feel the body from within the body and the body as the body. That's the beginning to bring the field into focus with sati, with awareness. And then it's the, it is this investigation that is a light turning on, illumines the, the elementals of this body, removing the envelope of darkness that is just of, of ignorance, of not knowing our bodies as bodies, uh, that darkness that, that shrouds the reality of body experience. The very velocity with which the world of form appears and passes conceals the true nature. This, this is what was so shocking to the king, unprepared to see things as they were and therefore shattering his world so, so fast the way things arise and pass. But the way it was all kindly, caringly set up by the Bodhisattva goose was to show how the nature of form is falling away, is passing away in this very moment, even now, on all the assumptions of how we perceive things, to look, be able to see through the concealment by the speed or velocity of which these things are appearing and disappearing. It's a, it's a silent attunement. The ancient Polynesian navigators spent endless hours in this silence, in that vast sacred wilderness of the, of the Pacific Ocean, listening, observing, just watching, uh, having their senses, all the, all the senses of their being, sight, sound, smell, taste, body, organ, and mind sense door, all attuned. And some 3,000 to 5,000 years before Columbus and others were sailing with all their instruments, the, the shaman navigators of the Pacific were doing it all with awareness and intuition in this way, attuning to the, the order, the natural order the currents, the patterns that were revealed in ocean currents and waves and wind currents and waves and clouds and the cycles of stars. You know, for them, there was no out there. There was no distance between the sense door of I and the experience of light. It's all right here. No separation there. It was that is it is similar to that discerning quality of investigation when turned on the mind and body that starts to reveal the two currents, the two interrelated streams of mind and matter, moment to moment. This this bojanga, this awakening factor, uh, this illuminating power of the mind reveals the unique and universal nature of this mind and body seeing the stream of the, the elemental nature of the body, fire, water, earth, and air, through the direct experience of heat, coolness, vibration, stiffness, uh, smooth velvetiness, and uh, soft, uh, cottony textures, and hard, sandpapery, pebbly. We can know this. We can know our body this way, and the uh, sense of fluid flowing and uh, cohesion, patches, hardness, balls, uh, pressures, 
this is just the elemental nature of body. We, we begin to know it free of that conceptual holding of it, the conceptual framing of it. And similarly, the unique nature of mental qualities, the quality of aversion in the mind. The aim here is investigation, not pushing out. The, the, the tool of awakening is understanding, discernment. So we discern the quality of aversion, and we feel its, its quality in the mind, wherever, however one might experience it as a kind of darkness or heaviness or sense of separation or heat, physical sensations of contraction and tightness. We may, at another mind moment, uh, be visited by uh, metta or karuna and see the difference. A mind with light, a sense of connection rather than disconnection, feeling of union rather than separation. It's just this one moment is a mind visited by aversion, another moment is visited by uh, metta. The same attitude with attachment or desire. We want to be masters of understanding, masters of desire. We don't want to be a victim, we don't want to be dominated by it. We go into it, we feel its quality in the mind. How does it affect consciousness? What are its contours? And how is it felt in the body? And how might we discern the difference between the mind of attachment uh, and a mind of generosity or contentment? How does that feel in the body, in the mind? That's what investigation is doing. It's not comparing. It's discerning. It's not measuring one up against the other. It discerns its unique nature. It, dis it discerns its consequences. What's the after, after effect? What resides, what residue is left in consciousness from uh, uh, anger? And the residue from loving kindness? How does that fill out in the rest of the whole mind-body unity experience? So we're paying attention. So we know, we understand the quality of the direction of skillful states, qualities of mind, unskillful states, qualities. It's immediate effect psychologically. It's and how, when it rolls along in our experience, how it affects our, our engagement with the world, our surround. So this bojanga, this discerning quality, uh, reveals the unique nature. It also reveals the universal nature of experience, such as what was revealed to the, the king, the Banaras, the universal nature of anicca, that all these things that we're experiencing moment to moment have this nature of appearing and vanishing much faster than we can imagine except in moments of insight. Now, an insight, an insight into Anicca is a moment like the king had where conditions were created to be, uh, for things to, as they are to be seen. That same outward mythical story is what's going on when we practice. We're practicing to create the conditions so that we as well have this sudden intuitive flash into a universal nature of experience such as anicca or dukkha or anatta. The focus, discerning awareness on the, our mind-body uh, world knows the elemental nature, begins to know elemental nature of mind and body and, and it helps to unify our consciousness in a focused way. First, maybe in a limited field, or at times in a limited field. It is if we know the nature of things uh, just in uh, the breath, for example, or with body, or in a field of sounds. The same knowledge by inference spreads later to a much wider field. So we, we start with a limited field because it's a place to rest our attention. And we focus at first perhaps on unique natures of mind and matter. 
to later then rest and focus on the universal nature, that is, on the nature of things as opposed to the things themselves. That is, the focus of attention then is on the flow nature of experience, that it is appearing and disappearing, or in some cases we just see it dissolving moment to moment. That's the illumination on a universal aspect of our experience. Field of awareness, the entire six sense doors, our anchor perhaps in just awareness itself. It's panoramic, spacious, free flow, creative mind, just noticing things as they are. From this development of investigation, there's no longer the sense of noticing now this, now that. Rather, the sense may turn into things coming forward. The great 12th century Zen master Dogen said, to carry yourself forward and experience myriad things is delusion. But myriad things coming forward and experiencing themselves is awakening. It's like a rhythm gets done, gets down. When, we, when one first starts weaving, uh, moving the shuttle to and fro and setting all the warp and weft on the threads and so forth. But uh, when you see someone really skilled at it, pretty soon there's just this movement, this dance. And uh, in, in Burma, for example, there's usually two doing it together. Uh, and, and you, you feel this whole movement, this, this rhythmic flow, this almost like a song, just going back and forth. And very soon, the pattern just emerges. It's the same way we use this uh, sati and dhamma vachaya, this, this uh, pre-verbal awareness and the in discerning investigation, the first two awakening factors. And once they start to click, uh, engage, it just starts happening naturally, organically kind of natural awareness arising right out of the field of experience, not having to look and scan the field. It is the field. And that's that sense then of the myriad things coming forward and experiencing themselves, and that being awakening. There is no one who is experiencing the myriad things. It's just things appearing and passing. So why... Why is it difficult? Perhaps the one great obscuring, distracting force of mind is um, what we call the papancha mind, papancha mind, ego proliferation, or self-referencing, or the embellishment of phenomena, natural phenomena or fabrication built on an imprint, a sense imprint. The papancha mind is the, the predominant experience of, of most of our mental activity most of the time. So it's a mirage to say that, you know, well, I'm pretty aware. <laughs> we can say we know you know, we know we're seeing or hearing or feeling sensations, but that that real, that pre-papancha awareness, that pre-verbal awareness, it's knowing things just as they are moment to moment at attunement, it's pretty rare. The, the, the papancha is constantly cutting into sense experience. So that what we usually experience are, are shadows of reality. We experience a distance from things rather than the depth, rather than the sense of that stone going into the heart of the stream. We feel it from the inside. So like when we, are, when we see a person in retreat, it's rare that we can just at that moment notice the actual immediacy of seeing. We're usually 
almost immediately launched into uh, man, woman, like, dislike, you know, some preference, or you know, we dress someone up immediately, conceptually, to be irresistible or repulsive, you know, or neutral, kind of indifferent, with this papancha mind. That's what it does. It's a uh, the scene is missed, you know, the, but there is the impression. Scene is what happens first, and then it immediately moves into concept. Man, woman, person. And usually unchecked even there, it moves into all the constructs, associations, where we describe ourselves. We have a little story, you know. You walk into the cafeteria, the room, and you start seeing everyone sitting in their places, and you may have little stories for everyone. Or a lot of everyone, anyway. <laughs> little stories about how they sit, or how they walk, or how they dress, or they're so-and-so, and... You know, and we kind of enter our little fairyland, storyland, papancha punchlines, you know, with everybody. Uh, and, there's, and it's really a relationship with our ideas, with our interpretation of these persons. Papancha mind sees only preferences, likes, dislikes, judgments. Papancha relates only to ideas, ideas to ideas. That is, instead of experiencing things as they are, we're experiencing the dream, the interpretation of what's before us. So awareness, the immediate awareness that is there, that's available for a scene, as soon as scene arise, arises, is insulated from the truth. Like a canoe uh, insulates the paddler from the current of the ocean. A, a, a beginning, a beginning paddler. They feel insulated, they feel separate from the ocean and maybe a little wary of it, a little disturbed. In some cases, quite disturbed. <laughs> to be in this boat, you know, in the middle of this large ocean, it's really blue and deep. <laughs> Papancha mind is, uh, can treat one thing one way, one time, and that same thing, another time, very different. We, we have a, one of the yogis who come to our young adults' retreats in the summertime. She, uh, she's, from, she's local, she's from Barrie. And she said in a uh, courageous admi uh, admission once, she said, you know, that she used to be one of the kids driving by here in the car, honking the horn all the way by here. You know, and they really got off on that. They really enjoyed whatever they thought was happening in here, which is a hundred different things, right, when we hear that sound. But for them, it's, oh, yeah, you know, shatter the silence of those weird meditators or something. And then she said, you know, it was a shocking experience for her as a yogi to be in here and here some cars go by and, you know, wondering, is, this, is that my friends, you know, and they're honking out there. And she's hearing it, but from a very different place. She said, you know, feeling some remorse and some uh, embarrassment, you know, and wondering where her friends might be going to. <laughs> the impression is the same, you know, the sound. And where it goes uh, is very different depending on our attention to it. Pure, inten uh, pure attention is always there. But with the untrained mind, it, it immediately launches off in this papancha process. So that we, we're not left, we're left with the shadow, we're not left so much with the lingering reverberation of the sound or the, or the, um, the visual effect, but already launched into the concepts. We were talking a little bit this morning uh, about wild geese flying over and hearing that sound. Sometimes the, uh, that haunting honk of the wild geese flying south, it, you know, it, it, it's, uh, it has a powerful effect in the heart, you know, some kind of longing or romantic uh, uh, memory. Uh, at another time, when we're more equanimous, the sound arises, it's still a pleasant sound, but there's, not effect, there's no effect, it's just sound. It's just, it's just the sound itself with no 
movements off into other associations or interpretations, just the pure sound. So, I mean, this, these are your more garden variety papancha minds. It can be more severe, too. It can be what we call yogi mind papancha that really embellishes. It's, uh, some years ago, uh, we were teaching in Australia, and after the Dhamma talk, came outside for a minute, and then, and then we're looking at the full moon. Michelle went wandering off. I didn't notice it, and I walked in through the walking hall to get to my room. And then I got to my room. I left the door open from the walking hall, thinking Michelle would be coming behind me, but. She had kind of wandered out, looked at the moon more, came in another door to my room. And I said, oh, why'd you come in that door? And she answered softly. I could hear her. But the yogi who was entering into the walking room couldn't hear her, but he heard me. He heard me say, why did you come in that door? <laughs> and then I shut my door. And this is nine o'clock at night. But five or six hours later, you know, three o'clock in the morning, there's a knock on my door. And this, this young man, you know, he said, Stephen, are, are you awake? I am now. Come in. And he said, why did you ask me why I came in that door? I said, what? <laughs> and, it, and it dawned on me what happened. I said, you know, I wasn't talking to you. <laughs> I was talking to Michelle. And he had built up in his mind. Can you, can you imagine just a, that papancha mind and he feeling criticized or rejected, and then what he does to his own mind, you know, why was he so worthless and deserving of, of that uh, comment and so forth for six hours. <laughs> so it took a while to unravel that little papancha fabrication. And we can see all the time, even in the course of a, a short sitting, how sometimes a powerful Something is triggered in us. It is uh, uh, anxiety might arise that triggers a f uh, fight flight response that really has nothing to do with anything external that's happening. Like it just comes, it doesn't, it's not in connection with any real happening. It's just perceived. It's how we regard it. It's uh, the emotional uh, state that we feel is a result of the way we interpret it, uh, the trigger. And the trigger might be just bodily sensations or certain uh, mental thoughts, distressing thoughts, thoughts of rejection, thoughts of abandonment, thoughts of betrayal, you know, thoughts of fear. And connects us to kind of vibrationally to a situation previously connected with anxiety or fear. And then this leads to a perception of imminent or present threat in some way. This is, how, and this is all happening just like this, very quick papancha mind. And this perception of imminent threat leads to apprehension, fear. Consumed by this fear in the mind, and then that's where we start. Maybe feel a, either a fight-flight response, or some people hyperventilation, or maybe a fluctuation between uh, longing fantasies of grandiosity. That's kind of one kind of escape, and wanting to be nurtured. Or on the other hand, depressive feelings of abandonment. You feel cut off that way, and this may lead to more bodily. Uh, agitating sensations or mental uh, uh, anxiety and difficulties, and that leads to interpretation of these sensations or mental difficulties as disastrous, as awful, and the cycle keeps going.
Now these are these are larger papancha experiences. These are the ones where we just not see what is we just see the shadow of something when we hear a sound and just interpret it, not in a in a veiled way or a distorted way or even a wrong way. And others are more these stronger internal situations where it's more like a yogi mind, a larger papancha that has real consequences. Because the way we if we don't see through this papancha, it it leads to the way we view ourselves and view the world. It colors our values. It colors our actions in the world. And soon we're kind of caught. We're living in the dream. We're living in the interpretation. And there's often a lot of dukkha in it, in that way, when we can't just connect with what is. So investigation is that is discerning different moments of experience. You can come in anywhere along the chain of these cycles and feel the perception of fear, or connect with the sensations in the body, or see the, how the mind is projecting out somewhere. If we're uh, in our, you know, our walking space, all of a sudden we're, we're feel safe, we feel protected, and then we feel it intruded upon. Someone else walks near there. And then what's our immediate response to that? Maybe it's a kind of fear or anger or an immediate angry projection onto that person. You know, why are you doing that? Or this person's copying or following or do 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 you know, whatever goes on. Uh, and the mind really quickly proliferates and it may occupy much or all of the walking. Anywhere along the line, we can take this investigation, just stop and see if we can cut that cycle by connecting to what's happening just now. That sensation, that projecting thought, that comparing mind, that's that identifying I thought of, you know, this is my space, this is my space, and keep three meters away on either side of me, and, you know, and then see those states happening. It's just elements of life appearing and disappearing through the eyes of this investigation, through that pre-papancha awareness. Notice the proliferation. It's just as valuable to see the proliferation happening as it is to rest in those periods of, of long uh, pre-papancha awareness, pre-verbal awareness. It's really important to experiment, you know, with ways of, of seeing it from all sides. If, if you want, take some time where you resolve even not to look around. See how long you can go, how many sittings and walkings you can go without ever actually really seeing someone. I mean, you might recognize some, you look, you know, you've seen a lot of feet and socks and shoes. And you might recognize some people, but just resolve not to proliferate on identifying people around you. You know, and keep your, your, your vision, this sort of voluntary, skillful restraint of the, the field of vision, and move about that way. And then either when you make a mistake or when it's so compelling, you can't help yourself, and you look, you see someone, it's really interesting you know, to see the, perhaps the flood of judgments, or maybe lack of them for a while. You might even just see, you might just be seen. You might just be seen for a while. And you might see the difference between seeing and recognizing old person and so forth and some thoughts, a little more constructs, kind of identifying that person and so forth. But it might be broken up more by the power of perception of that uh, dhamma-vichaya investigation, discerning mind. Powerful thing to play with, this uh, resolve, seclusion of mind. I mean, that's why um, uh, it's spoken of as a, different levels, different kinds of seclusions. And seclusion of mind is protection from the hindrances. It gives us enough time to strengthen the awareness and investigation so that when we do encounter the hindrances again, they may not be so disturbing or agitating. They may slip in and out quicker 
like that uh, lotus leaf quality mind. It just comes in and slides away. Mindful investigation redirects the mental flow from the the more the obsessions based on papancha. Steps behind the, the curtain of concepts, uh, and with the discerning wisdom, dispels the darkness of delusion. No longer feels so insulated. It's like the more skilled paddler, who begins to feel the current beneath the canoe, where the mind heart. Uh, the canoe is just an extension of mind-heart, and you, your body flows with the current using the canoe as a vehicle, not as an insulation, not as a separation from it. Seen as it is, is a condition for, for transformation. It's a condition for the ripening, the strengthening of these awakening factors of mind. Investigate what appears not what has not yet appeared. That sense of, of phenomena revealing itself. To carry yourself forward and experience the myriad things is delusion. Myriad things coming forth and experiencing themselves is awakening. We open to what is, both the unique and the universal, unique qualities, elements of mind, of body, and their universal nature of change, arising, passing, or dukkha, their vulnerability, their fragility in this fragile world, or their anatta nature. See, the emptiness of each cell of experience in the body or mind opening to what is, not trying to get or get rid of anything. Because we see that in dealing with this papancha process, it's not getting rid of the pain or anxiety or fear or desire that we come to peace, that we find the happiness, that we find the deathless. This would make us dependent on always arranging or rearranging our environment. You can't control this. This is anatta nature. Are not uncontrollable. The mindfulness and discerning awareness cleanses the perception, unifies mind and body, so that it's a shift in the way of seeing, a shift in view of how we look at this mind body and our world around us. It's not changing the emotion. It's about getting rid of the emotion of fear or desire. Then we're, we're bound by the very forces of attachment and aversion that we wish to be free of. Just see differently. Awareness brings the immediate experience into focus and gives wisdom the access to dispel the darkness so that we can awaken from the dream. And our task is just that sense of leaning back on time, developing that beginner's, that soft gaze of the beginner's mind. Let me just scan. We scan the inner horizon of the mind and body. We scan the, the horizon of the sense fields, sounds and sights, sensations. Just like a, a native tracker or just like the navigator in the Pacific who would not look for anything in particular, but look to see what stepped out, what patterns stepped out, what shifts in the horizon of light and shadow, shift of form and color, change in timber and tone. Let the, the bare experience itself step out rather than having any idea whatsoever 
of what it is that we're looking for. Let's sit quietly for a moment or two. Please continue your practice with a universe of patience and self-acceptance. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.